to The Business of Being Brilliant, where I explore the human side of work. I talk to business leaders, academics, authors and other experts about what's helped them to work at their best and how we can create organisations where everyone can flourish. I'm your host, Helen Beedham, organisational expert, speaker and award-winning author of the Amazon best-selling business book, The Future of Time. You'll find the show notes at helenbeedham.com where you can also sign up for my insights into the latest work trends, plus some exclusive offers to help you flourish at work and home. Now, let's crack on with this week's episode. Hello, and welcome to episode six in this sixth series of The Business of Being Brilliant. And my update this week is going to be shorter than usual, because as you can probably hear, I've lost my voice this week. It was a little bit croaky at the start of the week, but then after facilitating one of my time intelligence workshops with a leadership team, and then a day or so later speaking at the Mad World Summit for Mental Health and Wellbeing at work, completely finished it off. I intend to spend the weekend saying and hopefully doing very little, so I'm back to full bounce and voice by next week's episode. At the Mad World Summit, I was chairing a discussion about how to create a workplace for humans, especially when the workplace isn't an office, but a bus, the street, or the side of the road, or an animal rescue centre. My co-panellists were HR and wellbeing leaders from First Bus, National Grid and the RSPCA, the majority of whose workforces are out in the field and not based in offices. Much of the conversation about hybrid working and time flexibility has centred on office-based employees, so it was great to hear how they are redesigning work processes and roles for colleagues who spend their day out and about in frontline work with customers. If you're interested to read some of the key takeaways from the conversation, there's a link in the show notes to my LinkedIn post sharing these. And if you're looking for a speaker or experienced panel host for a conversation or an event that you're organising about new ways of working and introducing more time flexibility, then do get in touch at hello at helenbeedham.com or via social media if you think I might be a good fit and we can chat. Right, let's hear now from this week's guests, who have grown a highly successful business from scratch, advised countless leaders and boards, co-authored a brilliant new book, and are trailblazing co-CEOs. I'm delighted to welcome not one, but two female leaders to the show this week. Jennifer Sundberg and Pippa Begg are the co-CEOs of Board Intelligence, a mission-led technology firm that helps transform boards and leadership teams into a powerful driver of performance and a force for good. Board Intelligence founder Jennifer was awarded the Times Young Businesswoman of the Year and she has held a regular column with management today. Pippa is a guest lecturer at Henley Business School and has won numerous awards including Management Today's 35 Women Under 35 and jointly They were both awarded EY Entrepreneur of the Year. Together, they have co-authored a book that's hitting the bookshelves on the 9th of November. 
It's called Collective Intelligence, How to Build a Business That's Smarter Than You. Welcome to the business of being brilliant, Jen and Pippa. Thank you. <clears throat> we were London EY entrepreneur of the year, but I'm delighted by the upgrade. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for that clarification. I've bigged you up, but not that your CVs need you to be that at all. But yeah. that's very honest of you to pick out that, that small detail. But the, thank you for that. And I'm so chuffed to be talking to you both about your business and about what it's like being a co-CEO, because I think you are only the second pair of guests I've had on the show. And it's been going for about two years now. So that's exciting in itself. And of course, you being on the show is exciting. But also you're the first co-CEOs that I've spoken to and, and actually I'm familiar with. So really interested to hear your perspective on that and obviously digging into your new book, Collective Intelligence. So let's ask first about the business. So tell us about what the business really does, how it helps leaders and boards be a force for good and, and really drive performance. What's under the lid of, of board intelligence? Well, it might be worth starting at the beginning and how we met and what was the original insight and shared hypothesis for the business. So, um, so Jen and I met in our 20s. So we were still relatively young, fresh-faced, but I both had career experiences. So I'd been working in asset management and through the roles that I've been doing, I had exposure to fund boards from a very early age. Jen had been working in strategy consultancy and similarly had been facilitating strategy away days for boards so had, had been experiencing the boardroom from that perspective, corporate boards. So very different boardrooms that we'd had exposure to, but I think we'd had a shared insight, which was all was not well in the boardroom. And this was uh, about the time we met, it was global financial crisis, so 2008, 2009. So a lot was not going well in boards mm -hmm. at the time. And the media would have had you believe that the reason all was not well was because we had the wrong directors, we had the wrong people on our boards, and that's why everything was going wrong. They didn't have the right skills, they didn't have the right experiences, they didn't have the right behavioral characteristics to do a good job. Now, we knew that not to be true. So from our experiences, we knew very many great board members who had exactly the skills and experiences that you would have put to put them around the table. And we also knew that, that those individuals had absolutely the right intent. They weren't doing it for the money. They were doing it for the love of the organization and wanting to see them succeed. But something wasn't working. And I think our observation was you've got these brilliant people, but you put them together around the boardroom table and you're not getting the sum of the parts. Something's going wrong. And I think that was a thing that intrigued us. So what is it? about the boardroom that means you put these brilliant people around the table um, and you don't end up with the sum of the parts. Um, what's going on and how can we help solve that problem? That was the, the question that I think we started to think about. Yeah, that's really fascinating to hear and particularly how the media angle was, well, you just need to change the people around the table. But from your experience of seeing boards in action, you knew that wasn't the problem. And actually there's something wrong with the dynamic of what's happening in the room when they are around the table. So really interesting to hear. So how did you take that kind of realization and, and observation into growing the business and becoming joint CEOs? Yeah, so joint CEOs. So, so we decided to join forces and in the early days, we were not joint co-CEOs. We were just building a business together. There was just stuff to get done and we chaired out between the two of us. In the early days, we were very much a consultancy before we 
became latterly a technology company. And as a consultancy, I suppose the partner model makes that a fairly accepted structure. We were both essentially partners, senior execs in the firm. But we did transition to become a technology company probably three, four years into our journey together. And then we grew from, say, 50 people to 150 people. And we did come under quite a lot of pressure to clarify who does what around here and who's in charge. And and I think we learned along the way that actually the lack of clarity, your ambiguity is what breeds politics. I think we'd always very much aspire to a flat structure that fitted comfortably with our worldview, but you still need the clarity of articulating who is in charge. And truthfully, we were both in charge. And so we formalized our roles as co-chief execs. And I think that was probably in the sort of around 2012, 2013 time. But that was the first time we actually gave ourselves a job title at all. And it was probably the smartest thing we ever did, probably the smartest leadership decision we ever took to run this business as co-CEOs for lots and lots of reasons. So at various points in the last 15 or so years, each of us have had children, multiple children. And it's been very helpful being able to pass the baton over to one another so that we could each take a proper chunk of maternity leave. It's also due to fulfil the two quite distinct jobs of a chief exec. All chief execs need to lead the business of today and build the business of tomorrow. Those are two enormous jobs of equal importance and very difficult to do at the same time. So again, at various times, either one of us has taken one of those briefs and run with it, giving us twice the capacity. It's also, as a theme that, that runs through our book, I suppose it's anchored in our belief that too much centralised power is unhealthy. We all know the corrupting effects of power, but power also makes you stupid. And I think the benefit that we've had as co-CEOs is that ability to challenge each other as equals all of the time. And we do believe two heads are better than one. And I think we, we embody the spirit of collective intelligence in that in that leadership model, as well as hopefully through the rest of our business and uh, everything that we do. And it's also just been a lot more a lot more fun and a much easier way to, I suppose, sustain that resilience that you need on the journey with the hard knocks. I can't imagine what it must be like not to have somebody in the way that I have Pippa and hopefully she feels she has me, who I can call in a completely unguarded way. And whether it's vent or offload or just unburden myself of whatever it is that's bothering me, knowing that I've got an ally there who is 100% on my side and going to help me put the pieces back together again and get it all humming. I suppose other people might find that support in other ways, whether it's a, a chairman or a CFO, a spouse, and actually we've got pretty awesome spouses, both of us who, who support us in that way too. But having one another has been, yeah, has, has been invaluable and an essential part of this journey we've been on. Yeah, that's so interesting to hear. Just hearing that directly from you both, it's a fantastic bit of advocacy for job sharing at the most senior levels, because I know job sharing, generally, there's a growing interest in that, but still relatively few examples of it in executive levels, and particularly at CEO level. Do you find other CEOs are quite interested in asking how you do it. Do you feel that you're a bit of a novelty when you're talking, not in that obviously you have stacks of experience and running businesses, but are other CEOs surprised to discover you share the role or are interested in exploring whether they could do that? It's a topic of interest. It was definitely something that when we've done rounds of fundraising in the past, it's something that I'd say has been a concern of many investors. Mm. They want to understand if things go wrong, who takes the bullet was the way they put it, to which it's like, well, both of us. And for us, it seems like the most natural 
thing in the world, probably because it's the way we've been running things for the last 15 years. And and I think hopefully if you were to ask our investors, they'd say they were persuaded that it's a, that it's a model that does work. But yes, it is it is unusual. Yeah, I think lots of people will often question whether it's a slower model to run the business mm-hmm. because of that shared decision making. And of course, of course, discussing like big decisions does slow you down somewhat in that moment. But if, if you think of the scenario that Jen painted, so say there's a big decision that we might discuss and debate. Say we get on the phone for an hour. Say it takes us three hours to discuss and debate it. That's an hour or three hours. The rest of the time, there is still two of us in that divide and conquer mode of the business of today, the business of tomorrow, whether it be product and tech or commercial, it's so much faster. And again, I think we are great believers of the the viewpoint that one of us will have when we're thinking about a problem. The minute we talk to the other person, they'll have a slightly different viewpoint and perspective, which always expands your view of the world. Um, So I think we both believe we always end up in a better place at the end of our discussions as well. And even if it takes us a few hours or a few days longer to reach a decision that we're both aligned around, nothing slows you down as much as missteps. I think if we can knock off the edges of some of our worst decisions or reduce even just a few percentage points, the number of bad decisions that we make for want of spending just a little bit more time on it together, we're much the better for it. Yeah, that's a really persuasive argument for taking a little bit more time to get different views in before you make the decision, which effectively might take you a little bit longer, but actually saves you time in the long run, as you say, hopefully fewer missteps to deal with, but also better quality decision making at the end of the day, because you've really road tested it from all angles. I I know there's a a lot written and a lot of stats out there about the loneliness that is prevalent among CEOs because of the mental burdens you carry and how difficult it is to find people who really get what it's like to be in that position carrying the weight of decisions and and that balance between the needs of today and the needs of the future business as well so that's a really strong argument for sharing some of that load and I think there's probably another critical ingredient which is that we fundamentally like each other and share values because I don't know if this is true but I read somewhere that one of the top 10 reasons why founder-led businesses fail is because the founders fall out yeah. with each other. And I suppose the structure like this of, of co-chief execs, we didn't respect each other. If we didn't think that when we disagreed, it must be because the other person has thought of something I haven't. And if I still don't get it, we just need to go it again so that I can understand what is it that Pippa's sensing that I'm not seeing. If, if it wasn't based on the foundation of my belief that there's some value to be had from understanding why we don't agree it obviously wouldn't work if one of us mm-hmm. thought I was a, a, an idiot or if we didn't share values and I think also sharing values means that on plenty of decisions we don't need to come together we crack on and whatever our brief at the time is we empower one another to make decisions that need to be made minute by minute day to day in, in those arenas and trusting that we share values is fundamental to the belief that those decisions will still ultimately build the nature of a business and a business that we're proud to be part of. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm curious to know, you could write a book about that, how to be joint CEOs and make it work. I mean, did you enjoy the book? We're going to come on to your new book, but how are you feeling now that is hitting the printers? Would you ever be up for writing a second book about what it's like to be a joint CEO and how you make it work? You might have different answers on that, I realise. <laughs> I, I think we learnt a lot from our first attempt at writing this book about how not to write a book. 
and and hopefully our second attempt which i can explain a bit more about was more or less works i suppose the more you go at anything the better you get at it so so perhaps i wouldn't be <laughs> sitting here with any plan to write a new book but i say never yeah. well, pippa sounds up for it yeah. <laughs> yeah sometimes you do need to catch your breath it's quite an endurance isn't it quite a marathon getting a book out so well let's get on and uh, talk about your new book then so you know you, you've described how you set up the company and then how you shifted from a consultancy model into much more of a tech company and how you share your role how did you come to the decision to write a book and how on earth did you find the time to do that in between juggling your roles and families as well outside of work what prompted you to write a book Pippa so I think one of the things we realized and we've come to realize over time as well is that that we were in quite a privileged position having this perspective of seeing into the boardroom as the business grew, we saw into more and more boardrooms. So to where we are today, so we've got 3,000 customers, and that spans Fortune 50 organizations through to central government, through to your local sixth form college at the end of your road and, and a charity dear to your heart. So there's a real mix of almost every different governance structure you could imagine in there and every different type of organization. And one of the things, so between Jen and I, we've probably observed many hundreds of board meetings. Now, if you think most people work in an organization for a big chunk of their year, their career, maybe they move around to two or three, you become a non-exec, maybe you hold two or three positions for a period of time. So maybe one might experience up to, if you were prolific up to the maybe 50 to 100 different boardrooms, I think the scale that um, we've experienced and the scale that we've observed enabled us to begin thinking about some of these patterns as what's working, what's not working, what's similar, what's different, what can be some of the solutions to some of the challenges that are common to all. And through that, I suppose, we developed our playbook that is core to the business that we are today. And through talking to our clients, through talking to our network and communities, there's a real hunger for others who maybe have exposure to just three or four boardrooms to understand what's happening outside, what's happening in other boardrooms. And so I suppose we basically felt that it was almost upon us that we needed to share some of those experiences in that playbook more widely because we knew it would be valuable because the boardroom is quite a closed and private space that it's hard to understand what others are doing. But our book isn't about the board, right, Viva? Our board isn't. Uh, our book isn't actually uh, called Boardroom Intelligence for a reason. It's called Collective Intelligence. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. and yes, and the, and I suppose there's a reason for that, right? And and the reason is that actually what's happening in the boardroom is like the the peak of the apex of actually something that's happening much more broadly throughout an organisation. So whether that's at every management team or whether that's at every micro decision that's taken through an organization, actually what you observe in the boardroom is the same thing that's happening throughout. And so the book's called Collective Intelligence, as as Jen mentioned, not boardroom intelligence, because the playbook is actually all about how you can impact those decisions that are being taken everywhere within the organization. So our learnings from what helps create the 
conditions for great decisions in the boardroom. I suppose it's about sharing that, but what creates the conditions for great decisions at every level of an organisation. Yeah, and what we also learned over the years was that <clears throat> the businesses whose decision-making centre of gravity is as far away from the boardroom as possible are actually the most enduringly successful businesses. Businesses that concentrate that decision-making power at the top, they can't move fast enough. And it's hugely wasteful of the talent within the company. Yeah, so it sounds like it's all about how you help your teams at any level of the organisation to make really great decisions based on all the knowledge they have at their fingertips and can draw on. But we're going to unpack how you go about doing that. So so who would you say the book's for? If it's, it's, I hear what you say, it's not exclusive. And I've read the book and it's fantastic. And encourage people to pre-order their copy on Amazon now and be ready with it in their hands on launch day to enjoy it. But so it's not just about the boardroom. It's about, you know, any groups of people in organisations. So who would you like ideally to be buying the book and reading and following the advice? Any business leader, any business leader who wants to tap into the collective intelligence of their team, whether that's chief exec, whether that's a team lead. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. great. And let's get into some of the things you share your advice and experiences on in the book. So can you unpack the term collective intelligence for me? Jen, do you want to have a go? Yeah. Okay. so collective intelligence is about empowering everyone in an organization, not just the leadership team, not just the chief exec. It's about empowering everyone to think well and take good decisions. So it's about building a business that is systematically designed to tap in to the combined brain power of its people. And as we set out in the book, that's about equipping everyone with three capabilities and building a whole heap of habits around each of these three. So that's, first of all, critical thinking skills. It's secondly, clear communication skills because without that great thinking just withers on the vine and thirdly it's about establishing focus shared focus on what matters most so that all of that great thinking power is directed towards a shared and common goal yeah Okay. And why is this so important? I mean, I'm sure leaders everywhere are juggling lots of different priorities and things they need to be paying attention to. Why would you argue that this particular skill and capability in organisation is something that they really do need to prioritise as much as possible? Pippa? So I think, I suppose it goes back to two of the things that we mentioned. So one about your ability to remove decision-making bottlenecks. So again, if you don't have a broader team that you essentially trust and you know are taking high quality decisions because they have that high quality thought process because they're thinking well to I suppose Jen's point thinking well because they can communicate well and because you know that they're focused on what's important if you don't believe that that is happening through your organization it becomes very hard to delegate and empower others to think act and do And then what you end up with is an awful lot of information that just flows upwards in an organization and a bottleneck. So John Timpson, founder of Timpson's, the chain that we all have, you know, shoe shoe repairs and key Mm. repairs. So he had a management principle and theory that he used called upside down management, which basically a belief that those people, those people who were in the shops, in the stores, they had the best sense of what was going on in their area of the business. And they therefore needed to be empowered to share those insights and take those decisions. I suppose ultimately, 
we believe that organizations that can create that system and those conditions for success, not just will be faster, but of course, they're going to take better decisions over the long term, because you've got an army of people sensing what's going on and making decisions rather than just a few at the top locked in a boardroom in head office, who of course can't be able to see everything. Yeah, that makes sense. And I've lost count of the number of people that work in often medium to large organisations that say it's really hard to get decisions made around here or it takes forever to get a decision or I can't influence that decision. And I feel really frustrated because in my day job, I can see X, Y, Z that's really important and actually often quite simple things that we could do to improve the outcome for the client. But actually making that happen feels like quite a tortuous process. And I think this was one of the epiphanies we had. We'd, we'd invested in the first part of the building of board intelligence, we invested our energies in helping boards to operate at full pelt. And on our best days where we felt we'd really delivered against that brief, we had the unfortunate recognition that actually it wasn't enough. And that even a board that operates at full pelt in an era that we live in today, where it's not the big that eat the small, it's the fast that eat the slow. Boards just can't process enough stuff to take all the big important decisions. One of our clients on a FTSE 100 board, he said to us, I need a horizontal board agenda for all of my number one priorities. Boards are overwhelmed with priorities and you know you can't just add another meeting into the cycle. That's, again, it's not enough. To move fast enough these days and to remove those decision-making bottlenecks, you, you have to move that decision-making power down through the organization. But it would be foolhardy to just say, off you go, take decisions over to you without putting in place the necessary processes, habits, skills, and so on to make sure that that decision-making authority is well-discharged and matched yeah. by accountability. Yeah, that makes sense. You just can't keep pushing stuff up because it, it will get lost or there's not enough time, quite frankly. And, and as you say, there are so many other reasons why you need to decentralise a lot of that decision making. And so also, what a waste. For as long yeah. as we are hiring people, not robots, not AI machines, and you know, who knows, it's all changing fast, right? But for as long as we're hiring people to do jobs that only people can do, what a waste not to tap into that. Yeah. And in this day and age, again, the, the business world is a competitive game. Waste is not a winner. So make the most of what you've got on this yeah. ship. Absolutely. And all the, you know, the research around engagement shows that that goes up when you give people more autonomy and freedom to make decisions with support and the right structures. So let's get into the nuts and bolts. So what are some of the practical ways you can design an organisation or interventions you can make that help people, as you say, ask better questions, to think better and more broadly as a group and to communicate that? I don't know which one of you would like to start the answer on that one. Yeah, so thinking, communicating and focusing. So so starting with thinking, the central methodology that we share in our book is called the question-driven insight principle. And you'll hear as we carry on through this podcast, no doubt the key word that will come up most often will be questions. So we are question obsessives because questions are the catalyst to critical thinking, right? They're the starting gun, they're the spark and the fuel of curiosity, ideas, critical thinking. It's a, it's a great quote from Stephen Hawking that we love. It says, I'm just like a child who never grew up. I ask a lot of how and why questions and occasionally I find an answer because questions are really powerful. And uh, we, say, we tell a story in the book. I won't go into huge amounts of detail here. But we tell a story in the book that brings us to life hopefully quite nicely, which was an American football coach who sat on the, or stood on the sidelines watching his team as they battle it out. And all of a sudden the question pops into his head and he says to himself isn't it 
weird that during the course of a game, players don't need to urinate. Even at half time, the toilets in the locker room go strangely unused. And he asked himself, why is that? And uh, <clears throat> it began with a question. It went on to uncovering the role of electrolytes in how we regulate the body. Uh, and it ended with the creation of a new drink, which uh, he gave the name Gatorade after the Florida Gators, who were his American football team. And in the launch of Gatorade opened what, turned, what became a multi-billion dollar business and a multi-billion dollar energy and sports drink segment. But it all began with a question. So to build collective intelligence, we all need to get better at asking questions. And the good news is we're all born questioners. You know, apparently children will ask over or between ages about two and five will typically ask about 100 questions a day. <laughs> but something happens as we go through our formal education and we start to put more weight on knowing the answers to the questions, examinations and the like. And it's not just knowing any answer, it's knowing specifically the answer in the back of the examiner's booklet right so yeah. you know, as we go through our education and by the time we reach our office or our professional careers that questioning habit has been beaten out of us so what we set out in the book is how do you build back that habit of questioning to create a culture of questioning which in turn is the as I say the starting on for a culture of deep meaningful thinking yeah yeah. And you mentioned question driven insights. And in the book, you talk about it's having a few carefully chosen what and why and how questions that you keep asking as a group that will help uncover the things that you're not thinking about and challenge some of your assumptions, etc. Is, is that a reasonable way of describing it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so can you share a, a practical way that people listening who might be thinking, I totally buy into this. I really want to encourage more critical thinking and a culture whereby people feel empowered to ask questions and, and think, what's something I can do or ask uh, in a meeting tomorrow or, or try out uh, and see what the results are? Can you suggest something, Pippa? Well, yeah, so I think all business leaders will know whether you've got a small team or whether you're a chief exec, you know that you cannot command people to do things. You can't just say, I'd like you all to think a bit harder today, please, or I'd like you all to think a bit differently about this challenge today, or go, I'd like you to write a bit better, or could you write me a shorter letter? We know that just asking people, commanding them to do things isn't the thing that's going to work. So one of the things that I think we've learned is you need to make whatever change you're trying to achieve, you need to make it easy to do and hard to avoid. So yeah. easy for the people to adopt and some parameters that means that one can't avoid doing that. So what we do is we think, what are all the set pieces that already exist in a business that we could hijack and we can inject the QDI principle into those set pieces. So they're already happening. So we're not asking anyone to start doing anything new. We're just changing the way that they do these set pieces. So let me give you an example of the set piece. So set piece could be the board meeting at the top. It could be quarterly business reviews. It could be a weekly team meeting. It could be a daily trading update meeting. There's a, whatever those set pieces, those meetings, those review sessions, that already exist within an organization, we hijack those and we inject those with questions. And we encourage people then in the way that they prepare for those meetings 
to prepare in a totally different way. And you've got to bear in mind that these set pieces already exist and are done badly almost across the board. So through our client base, one of the things that we quite often do is we work with our clients to assess essentially the quality of information they have at the moment, but also we assess the time that goes into all of these regular cycles, the time and effort. FTSE, FTSE 100 financial services organization that we were working with, when they measured all of those set pieces, so the effort that goes into those set pieces, it was a double digit million pounds per annum spend going into those set pieces. The set pieces that were taking ages to prepare for, but that nobody even enjoyed and that the organization wasn't getting anything out of. There were bureaucratic processes that they were just going through. So we take those bureaucratic processes, we hijack them, we inject them with the QDI. And so they're easy for everyone to adopt and impossible to avoid. That's absolutely fascinating and so powerful that you can actually measure and quantify the time that people are investing in these conversations and decisions and hold that back up to business leaders and say, are you getting the full value from that time? Isn't there a smarter way of doing it? And it really chimes with some of the the thinking, the advice that I have written about it in my own book. So you're really helping people to use their time in a much more effective, impactful way as well. And I was chuckling as you were telling me that example I had somebody previously on the show who co-led research into the incredibly positive impact of introducing meeting-free days company-wide between one meeting-free day right up to five meeting-free days. I was asking them about how difficult it was to get business leaders on board with participating in the trial. He said, well, one organization, it took them, their entire management team, 30 hours so at times however many people, to make the decision of whether to commit to a meeting-free day or not. <laughs> like, the cost of that decision is just such a hilarious example. We're actually not big fans of the whole let's scrap meetings mantra that is quite prevalent. And uh, we've talked about how do you help stimulate critical thinking in an organisation, which for us is all about how you create the habit of engaging with difficult questions. And the other piece is about how you then communicate that thinking with impact. And in the book, we explain how most of the tenets of so-called good communication that we're taught at school and at university are actually quite wrong and get in the way of effective communication. And in the book, we take those five conventions, we relegate them to the bin, and we explain what we replace them with. Now, one of them is this, I suppose, this received wisdom at the moment that meetings are an obstacle to the effective functioning of an organization or a team. Meetings are a you know, a time sink and the best thing to do is get rid of them. And of course, like two working months, myself, Pippa, and yourself too, Helen, like nothing we would like more than to get rid of anything in our calendars that is unproductive. And meetings so often are. So we're not in disagreement about that. Not in disagreement that meetings are often unproductive. But if you're going to build an organization where the sum of the parts is greater than the individual pieces, you've got to work out how to bring people together so that they can spar off each other and have those light bulb moments that you only get when you interact and exchange information. You need to not get rid of meetings, just do them a whole heap better. And in the book, one of the pieces we set out is like, how do you do that? How do you turn meetings from this time sink and into the place where you get that interaction that really does propel a business forward? Yeah. Yeah. 
that advice is needed now more than ever, definitely, from what I hear from people. And I know one of the things you talk about are the meeting gremlins that you can watch out for and chat, which great way of phrasing it. Conscious of our time as well. I could chat for ages about the book. I feel like we haven't really done anywhere near justice to all the great examples and advice that's in there. But hopefully we've whetted listeners' appetite to go find out more. To wrap up the conversation, is there one question that you could suggest listeners might try in a meeting or tomorrow or in the sure. upcoming days i'm gonna give you i'm gonna give you four rapid fire questions okay <laughs> the main message here is simple questions are the best questions invariably i mean there may be exceptions to that but invariably it is the simple questions that are the best so questions like what why so what now what incredibly simple questions but so often when you explore what's going on in an organization you say well why are we even doing that no one can quite remember or information is shared and a huge amount of time goes into sharing it but there isn't equivalent time and effort to pulling out the so what and the now what and without that honestly it's just information for information's sake right and it's not going to drive any meaningful change or improvement so and engage it doesn't engage the gray matter so you know if, if there were only four questions and if i only had sort of seven or eight words to share them with it be yeah what why so what now what Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you for that reminder, because I, th- I think you're absolutely right. We often just skip over some of those or don't really listen carefully enough to some of the clues that might be lurking in the answers. So thank you so much for talking about your business and how you started it off, how you came to be co-CEOs and then what led you to share those insights, those many, many insights you've observed from all your time spent in different boardrooms and all sorts of different organisations. If people want to find out more about the book or about board intelligence or connect with you professionally, what's the best way for them to do that? So the book is available already to pre-order on Amazon. So you'll be able to find it there under the title, Collective Intelligence, How to Build a Business Smarter Than You. And if anyone would like to get in touch with Jen and I, we love having conversations. Please do just email either of us. Just our name's pippa.berg, jennifer.sunberg at boardintelligence.com. Brilliant. Thank you. I will pop all those links in the show notes. So if anybody forgets that as if they're driving in the car or whatever, or out on a dog walk, you'll find the links in the show notes on the webpage. It's been such a pleasure talking with you both. Really excited for you about your impending book launch. I'm sure it is something that leaders will be clutching and taking into their meetings all around the country. And I think what I'm taking away from the conversation is just a really strong reminder of the power of great questions and the ways in which we can build habits about asking and reflecting on great questions as an organisation. So thank you for being brilliant guests. Thanks, Helen. Thank you. Thanks for having us here with us. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this week's episode, please rate the podcast online, leave a review and share it with friends. And if you like to watch as well as listen, don't forget the videos are also on my YouTube channel. See you next Monday. Have a great week and keep on being brilliant. Brilliant.